You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hello, everyone. You guys sound really happy to be here. Hello. Didn't we just talk about that the sun is shining? You guys got a reason to be happy, at least one. Anyways, what about that video? Was that not amazing? My personal favorite is the first one where the kid baptizes himself and the one where like the WWE guy tackles the guy into the baptismal. That, he said, you are getting baptized today. It's happening. But that video kind of brings up a lot of questions, right? Like we all know, like there's a lot of weird things going on with baptism as we saw in that video. But like, what even is baptism? It's certainly confusing. Do we, do we have to do it to go to heaven? Do we have to get baptized as an infant or adult or somewhere in between? Do you need it to do it multiple times? Like, is there a re, like, you, you know, a warranty and you have to re-up every couple years? We have a lot of questions about baptism. And the thing is, this has been a debate for 2,000 years since the time of Jesus. It's a serious Christian debate. And since Jesus himself commands baptism, it seems like it's an important topic that we need to talk about, that we need to understand well as followers of Jesus. So today we're going to engage this subject. We're going to set aside all of our assumptions, all of our own ideas, We're going to come to the Bible and see what it has to say about baptism. But here's the thing, though. What if I told you that baptism isn't even a Christian idea? Hmm. Baptism, here's the thing. Baptism and sacred rituals involving water go back to well before Christianity. So first, let's look at what the word baptism actually even means in the first place. So the ancient Greek word where we get our word baptized is baptismos or baptisma, which gives us our word, and it means to dip or to plunge. And here's the, this is wild. Two of its common uses in ancient Greco-Roman culture were to describe two things, either the drowning of a person or the sinking of a ship. Yikes. It could also, though, refer to the dipping of a cloth into a dyeing agent to change the color of something. In the ancient Greco-Roman culture worship of the Roman and Greek pantheons, water and baptism were a part of ritual worship. They used water for pouring, sprinkling, and immersing worshipers in ceremonial cleansing before entering a sacred space. See, the idea was to purify yourself before entering into the presence of the holy, sacred space of the gods. And the thing about the Greco-Roman gods were like Zeus and Jupiter, Ares, Athena, Poseidon, Neptune. Like these gods were emotional, vengeful, and unpredictable. Have any of you ever read the, uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey? The, they're all over the place and everyone's on their tiptoes worrying about if they're going to appease or upset these gods. And so part of this ritual cleansing doing with water in the Greco-Roman world was to appease any possible wrath you might have incurred on part of the gods before you went into their space. Older than that, though, in the Gre- older than the Greco-Roman practices of baptism and sprinkling was the Jewish custom of baptisms and ritual washing. See, the, baptism, the idea of baptism not only goes before Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, it comes well before Christianity in the Jewish world, which is a direct 
line to us, right, as Christians. So here's what we're going to talk about. In early, in early Israelite religion in Judaism, it was linked, baptism was linked to ceremonial washing and cleansing in order to be able to enter the temple of Yahweh. So it sounds kind of similar to the Greco-Roman world. But ceremonial cleansing had nothing to do with salvation or appeasing Yahweh's wrath so that he would not lash out like the Roman and Greek gods would. But rather, it was about respect for the holiness and cleanliness of Yahweh and being clean and pure before him as he is clean and pure. See, the Israelite God, Yahweh, our God, God the Father, his goal was to be in relationship with Israel and all the world. And so he created a way out of his mercy for them to enter into his presence. And one of those ways was ensuring cleanliness and washing of all impurity, all impurity to be in the presence of what is pure. See, the difference here between the Greco-Roman washing and Jewish washing to enter into sacred space is that it was not about appeasing an easily offendable and vengeful, angry God, but this time it's about God's mercy and love washing you so that you could return to his presence where all joy and love and goodness are found. Baptism in Judaism was also practiced when new converts, people who were converting to Judaism, would undergo three things when coming into faith in Yahweh and entering the community of believers. Men would be circumcised. Ouch. Everyone would be baptized by submersion, men and women and children, and, all, and they will all offer, offer a sacrifice in the temple. And see, this was a way of joining the covenant family that God created with Israel and taking part in the story that God was telling through this nation. The point here is that water baptism was practiced well before Christianity. In fact, thousands of years before Christianity, if we're talking about Judaism. So how does this all matter to Christians? As Christians, we're inheritors of the Jewish faith. We believe that Jesus is the son of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that they are one in the same person and that he revealed him, the God of Israel revealed himself in Jesus. And we believe in that Jesus. So how does this all work with Christians? What we're going to do is we're going to turn to our Bibles we're going to understand why did we as Christians take part in these rituals involving cleansing and water baptism. And so this is going to feel like a fire hose of information, but bear with me. I want you to be listening for things concerning water, chaos, salvation. This is all going to make sense as we walk through the story of the Bible, but we have to go at it slow. There we will understand what baptism is and why it matters. So let's start all the way back at the beginning. Genesis 1, right? The first chapter of the first book of the Bible gives us a fundamental portrait of the world. God brings order to a chaotic abyss of water by acts of separating. And so in the ancient Near East where Israel was, they conceived of water, especially big, big bodies of water that they could not cross as chaotic and evil and symbols of death. But in Genesis 1, we see that Yahweh is separating the waters and creating a place where dry ground can appear, where humans can live and thrive. See, on page one of the Bible, God's spirit hovers over the dark cosmic waters. The word in there is abyss. And it says that the earth was wild and waste or formless and void, depending on your translation. And this wild and waste, this formless and void chaotic abyss made life and human community and flourishing impossible. But what we see in Genesis is that God is over those things and that he separates the waters and creates a space, a space where life can flourish. God's work begins in Genesis with multiple acts of separating. He separates the light from the darkness, the waters above from the waters below, and then the seas from the dry land by gathering the waters together. And dry land, including Eden, emerges up from the chaotic waters. And by bringing the place of life up out of these waters, God brings humanity into a new world where they can flourish. But 
In Genesis 3, as we know, by choosing to sin and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity unleashes chaos back into the world. And what we begin to see in the rest of the story of the Bible is a replaying of the pattern of God separating the waters. We start seeing God rescuing a remnant of people who are faithful to him pass through waters. This remnant then emerges out the other side to inhabit a new creation. The pattern begins with God's purpose, but once humanity disrupts this purpose, the pattern becomes God's act of rescuing his people. So let's take a look at the way Genesis 1 sets the whole story up. Let's look at the way the rest of the stories play this pattern out. So the story of Noah, the pattern of God providing salvation for his people through the waters reappears with the chaotic waters of the flood in the Genesis narrative of chapter 6 through 8. The flood is represented as a state of decreation. So remember in Genesis 1, God separates the waters in, in days 2 and 3, right? Days 2 or 3 of creation, God separates the waters so that dry land can appear for humans to live on. Now in the flood, God reverses that. says he opens the heavens and the water comes back crashing in. The springs of that cosmic deep water abyss from the beginning split and the windows of heaven are open, reversing days 2 and 3 of creation. Everything is wiped away from the face of the earth, then undoing days four and five of creation where God filled in the dry land with animals and people. But God remembers Noah and he rescues him as a remnant, Noah and his family, through the chaotic waters on the ark. Noah and his family are saved through the waters and they step onto a new dry land that emerges up out of the waters to begin a new humanity in a new creation. Now, next, the story of Moses. Jump ahead. We see this pattern again in one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we're introduced to Moses as a baby. And he's, again, what happens? He's delivered through the waters of death in an ark. Funny enough, the only two times that the word ark are used in the Hebrew, Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew word there is tevah, ark, it's only used here and in the story of Noah. It's like the biblical writers are winking at you like you should know what they're talking about here. He's referencing back to this pattern that we're seeing develop. Later then in the narrative, as God remembers his covenant with the family of Abraham and appoints Moses to deliver his people Israel out of slavery, God saves his chosen people of Egypt, how? By leading them through the chaotic waters of the Red Sea, by parting them and making a way for them through the waters into new life with him at Mount Sinai, where he makes a covenant with his people. Then, 40 years later, there's Joshua. Moses has died. God is about to take his people into the promised land. And the Israelites have wandered in the desert. Now this new generation is preparing to enter. And, and the Israelites spend the night at the Jordan River before finally entering the, entering the land. Even though the Israelites are not in, in danger, we still see the salvation template or this pattern playing out. God brings the people out of this dark, waste, wild wilderness, wild and waste, formless and void, the priests are instructed to carry the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, across the Jordan River. And as the priestly representatives, they enter into the water first. And as soon as the priest's feet touch the water, the river splits. God again separates chaotic waters for his people to come through into new life and into his promised land, into a land of God's blessing. Last stop in the Old Testament is the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah sees all these stories. Isaiah is living hundreds of years after this is all has happened. It's formational to the Jewish identity. And as Israel is exiled out of the land away to the east, does that sound familiar? Isaiah is writing to his people and he uses this same metaphor of life emerging from chaos waters. But he does so in a way that links this imagery not only to the past, but to the future of what God's going to do. 
to the messianic king, to a rescue from the ultimate exile of slavery to sin and death. After failed kings and the kingdom divides, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a future promise in the middle of destruction and exile in Isaiah 11. He said that there would come a day when a new king from David's line would be endowed with the spirit to bring justice to the poor in verses 1 through 5. The pattern picks up here, though, in Isaiah eleven ten, where we read that the root of Jesse, a.k.a. son of David, David is a son of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will seek him out, and his resting place will be glory. See, the image here is of a king from the line of David, the Messiah, which is a root that's somehow standing up to out to all the nations, and that the nations are moving towards. The pattern emerges, in, er, emerges even further, though, in the following verses, where the vocabulary from the Exodus and the flood narrative reappears. Look at el- verses 11 and 12, and then verse 16. Verse 11, and this shall happen on that day. The Lord will again extend his hand a second time to acquire the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath and the coastlands of the sea, and he will raise a signal for the nations, and he will gather the outcasts of Israel, and he will gather the scattered ones of Judah together from the four corners of the earth. And here's where it is. Verse 16. So there shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people that remains, as there was for Israel when it first went up from the land of Egypt. Again, the Lord is using his arm which is a phrase we've seen earlier in the Bible to describe God's use of his power on behalf of saving Israel, particularly during the Exodus story. In that story, Moses is described as God's hand and his strength going out. It's the way God is saving his people. And in that story, as we remember, God creates a highway for his people to walk on toward salvation. That's exactly what happened in the Red Sea. Isaiah's taking that image from Israel's past and saying, I know we're in a bad spot again right now, but he's gonna do it again. There's going to be another exodus, this time out of exile from Babylon and Assyria, and ultimately from sin and death. A couple things here in this passage. The word remnant or remainder. Where else did we just hear that? In the story of Noah. Noah and his family are the rescued remaining people floating among the chaotic waters. Similarly, the Israelites here in Isaiah are in exile. They are a remnant that's floating out in the sea of the nations, as the passage puts it. They're in Babylon and Assyria. These are the two big enemies of God's people that oppress them. And you know how Isaiah describes Babylon and Assyria as God's enemies in Isaiah? He calls them Egypt sometimes. Because in Israel's mind, Egypt was the original enemy other than the the serpent in in the garden. And this concept of water... It comes back, and in the Psalms, it becomes a metaphor for enemies. David says that he is drowning in the sea, that his enemies surround him. David takes this image of the chaotic waters and uses it to represent the evil around him. And Isaiah picks it up here. See, the biblical echoes of rescue uh, through water continue in the book of Isaiah. It says that God will use his arm like in the Exodus to lift up a banner to the nations, the king from the line of David, and the remnant will come from among the nations passing through the waters. And there will be another highway for the remnant, just like there was for Israel as they came out of Egypt. Isaiah is using this story in an analogous way to say that God will rescue his scattered nation of Israel from the chaotic waters of exile from among the nations. The remnant will be rescued from exile physically, spiritually, and corporately. And they will sing a new song of salvation just like Moses and Miriam do after they cross the Red Sea. So let's recap the Old Testament real quick. I know that was a lot. 
This idea of chaotic waters and passing through them into God's new creation for he has for his people starts in Genesis. God pulls back the waters to create land for his people to dwell. Then in the story of Noah, God undoes the creation because of how bad things have gotten, but he saves Noah, a last remaining man who's faithful to him and saves them on an ark through the chaotic waters. In Exodus, God saves Moses in a mini ark from death at the hands of Pharaoh. And God saves Israel by again separating chaotic waters and taking them through to dry ground and salvation. Years later, Joshua takes God's people into the new creation promised land, flowing with God's blessing just like the Garden of Eden was. And he does so by God again, separating chaotic waters so that they can enter into new life. Centuries later, after Israel has miserably failed at ruling the blessing that God gave them, much like Adam and Eve did, they are exiled to the east of Israel, east of Eden. And Isaiah writes to God's people, letting them know that God has not forgotten his people and will one day send another who will save them out of the chaotic waters to bring them into full salvation and new creation. And it's going to reverse everything that the, happened at the Garden of Eden. We tracking? The story of the Old Testament can be seen through the lens of God saving his people through the chaotic waters and bringing them into new life. So, now the New Testament. I promise that this section will be shorter. But realize something. The Old Testament is always bringing to a resolution and a climax what started in the Old Testament. Nothing in the New Testament was not first in the Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament is either happening in the Old Testament or is hinted at in, in the Old Testament to begin in the New Testament. So they're very connected. Nothing that happens in the New Testament was not in the Old Testament first. Remember that as we move forward. We begin first with John the Baptist. He is literally called the immerser or the baptizer. This is the first place where we see that word. He was a prophet to Israel, just like Moses and Isaiah. And his ministry was defined by baptism in the Jordan River, which is the exact place where God led Joshua and the people through the river into the promised land. To understand why John was baptizing and what it meant, we have to know that whole story that we just talked about or else it doesn't make sense. Because that's the way John talked about himself. That's the way the writers of the gospel talked about John is as if he's in that same line of the prophets and he's continuing that same story. The gospels tell us that John and others saw him as the prophesied voice of one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for Yahweh to come and fulfill all of his promises to save his people that Isaiah talked about. Therefore, John was practicing baptizing the Jews in the Jordan as a way of repenting of sins and recommitting yourself to Yahweh's kingdom and coming Messiah, cleansing yourself of the evil in the world in order to prepare yourself for Yahweh to fulfill the promises that he made in the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. See, what John was doing was having the people reenact God's salvation through the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan, where God made a way where there was no way through the chaotic waters and brought them into the promised land. John the Baptist initiated a renewal movement in the Jewish world. He claimed that God was about to come and fulfill his promises about the kingdom, about the Messiah, to bring Israel out of exile and slavery. He's baptizing people because he's saying it's about to happen again. God is about to bring us through the waters. His Messiah is on the way. Get ready. And of course, that's where Jesus steps in. See, the Bible, the New, the New Testament starts in Matthew and in Mark and Luke and John. And the way it presents Jesus is before Jesus steps on the scene, each of them, each of the gospels give Jesus a prologue. They want you to, they give you a little bit of information and then just introduce him. 
And the way that Mark talks about it is he introduces John the Baptist as one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for Yahweh. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. And then Jesus shows up as if they want you to know that he's here. Jesus is recorded as being baptized by John the Baptist, who was his cousin, by the way. John's role was to prepare the way for the Messiah to come and jumpstart his ministry on earth. So by proclaiming the kingdom of the Messiah and his baptism, John prepared for Jesus to come and be baptized to let them know that it was Jesus who was here to bring those promises to fulfillment. And here's what's cool. When Jesus is baptized, something crazy happens. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice speaks from heaven and he tells Everyone hears that he says that this is my beloved son and in him I am well pleased. There's a number of things happening here. First, the spirit coming down like a dove refers back to creation where God's spirit brings forth life out of the darkness and the chaotic waters. As well, the dove refers back to when Noah sent the dove out looking for life over the waters and brings back a branch, meaning that there is dry land for the people of God. There is salvation for the people of God. Here, the spirit descending on Jesus in this way refers to his power over creation and what he will do. He is here to bring life out of the dark and chaotic water. This is also a reference to the servant of Yahweh passages back in Isaiah 40 through 55. This is a section of Isaiah where Yahweh's anointed servant declares that the spirit of Yahweh is upon him to set the captives free, proclaim good news, and set creation right. Jesus literally uses that passage to describe himself and what he's about to do right after that. The heavens opening and God audibly declaring things from heaven refers back to the Old Testament stories where prophets were commissioned to speak with God's voice and do his work. Just like Moses on Mount Sinai with the burning bush. In Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees God's throne chariot that's like moving around with wheels. And in Isaiah, where God, go, uh, God brings Isaiah into his throne room to commission him to go and speak with his voice. The same thing's happening right here. The heavens open and God's glory descends to a commission a new prophet to speak with God's voice. And it's Jesus. So, Jesus' baptism symbolizes his anointment and his appointment to the task for which that he has been sent. Therefore, Jesus' baptism works as a way of introducing us to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He's the fulfillment of all Yahweh's promises. He's here to bring us salvation, the new exodus that was promised through the chaotic waters into God's kingdom, into his promised land, and establish God's presence here on earth as it was in the Garden of Eden. The Gospels go on after that to tell the story of Jesus' ministry, how he inaugurated the kingdom of God and created a new Israel out of his followers. Everyone expected him to go defeat the Roman Empire, cut off Caesar's head, and reestablish the Davidic dynasty just like David did when he killed Goliath and set up the kingdom on earth. But he doesn't. Rather, surprisingly, Jesus goes and allows the Jews, his family, and Rome to kill him. And so, of course, what happens is everyone was expecting him to do all these things, and they're like, we lost. That's it. And the disciples go into hiding, and everybody runs away from him. But that's not the end. Somehow Jesus comes back. He's resurrected. And as Jesus is leaving to go back to heaven to rule with the Father, he tells his disciples that this wasn't a defeat, but rather this was exactly the way that God had always intended to defeat evil, to bring all of humanity out of exile from the Garden of Eden and establish his kingdom on earth, forgive their sins, and finally come to dwell with his people. His last words to his disciples are the Great Commission in Matthew 8, 28, 16 through 20. Listen to this. So the 11 disciples, Judas is dead at this point, 
sorry, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Pause. Can you imagine doubting Jesus after he just died and came back? And he like floats up and they're like, I'm not buying it. That's insane. Sidebar. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me, but it shows that doesn't matter what you can see in your life. Somehow we can still be just as stubborn hearted and refuse to see what God's doing. That's a different sermon though. Therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you all of the days till the end of the age. Jesus commands them to spread the good news, teach people to live according, according to what he taught them after baptizing them. So clearly Jesus thinks this whole idea of water baptism and the chaotic waters is important. The rest of the New Testament, Acts, the letters of the disciples, and Paul to the Christian communities, they're all basically about this, this question. How do we accomplish this commission that Jesus gave us? What we see, especially in the letters of Paul, is these early church leaders, they're trying to make sense. How was Jesus who he said he was? How do we live out this new relationship that we have with him? And how does baptism fit out with that and what it means? So let's look at some of the language that Paul uses. First thing to note, in all of Paul's passages, he's assuming that everyone that he's talking to is baptized. Everyone. Believers. Not everyone like in the world, but people who are in a community of faith, he's assuming you've been baptized. Paul himself was baptized. The disciples were baptized. Thus, baptism for us, this is one of the things where it starts to land for how we're supposed to take this idea of baptism. It's a practice that Jesus commanded that Paul was thought was important and assumed that all of the believers were doing. So, baptism is an important part of Christian life. Second, Paul often refers to those baptized as being done so in the name of Jesus or in Christ. What Paul's talking about is he's referring to what happens in baptism. If you've been baptized, if you're going to be baptized, what happens is that you now belong to Jesus and his body. That's like Jesus getting the receipt for what he did on the cross. Got it. It's an initiation into the family of God. It's a way of saying, I am in Jesus. I give my allegiance to this guy. That you are now in Jesus. Third, baptism, as Paul talked about it, is about believers identifying with and participating in Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, the, waters visual, the water symbolized death and chaos. Going down under the water, we die in the waters. And we come back up out, a new person brought through the waters by the grace of Yahweh into new life. It's, it, in effect, the baptized person is declaring and enacting their death to their old way of living and coming alive to the new life that Jesus has for them. To be baptized is to say that Jesus truly was who he said he was, that he defeated the evil sin and death in the world at large and in you, and that you are renouncing the old ways that enslaved you, and you are choosing to die with Jesus so that you can be raised again in him. It is passing through the chaotic waters to escape the oppressive evil in the world, coming out the other side into new life and new creation. That's exciting, right? That's way more than I heard talked about as a kid. The, the Bible presents this huge, beautiful, mosaic portrait of what this all means. It's so exciting about it. It's directly related to this story in the New Old Testament and that comes to fulfillment in the new with Jesus. Jesus passed through the waters of death and out to the other side of life, and now he turns around to do the same for us. Jesus is Yahweh, parting the chaotic waters in order to save his children 
and to bring them to new creation and new life. See, Paul, often we read Paul's letters and the Gospels as if they're disconnected from other things. And sometimes you need to do that. We need to understand what is Paul talking about within this little part. But then you have to take a step out and realize Paul's letter is right here. And it's been placed in this story of the Old and New Testament. Paul is not just talking about some random idea of baptism that he got from Jesus. Jesus isn't just getting baptized as some random way of doing a new thing in this new thing that he's starting. It's a continuation of what happened in Genesis, in Noah, Moses, Joshua, what Isaiah was talking about. It all pointed forward to Jesus. And now Paul is here saying, you get to participate in that story. That's what baptism is. Biblical scholar and pastor N.T. Wright says that Paul often hints that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the Christian equivalent of Israelite, the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea and the Passover meal. So this is what that means. Baptism is then a way of participating in that larger story of what God has done through Israel. And now, Paul is saying that Jesus is saving his people and restoring us in his world. Baptism, like the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus, brings people out of the old humanity and into the new to the new messianic humanity and community. That's what Paul's saying when he says, you are a new creature in Jesus. The slaves have been set free and now they must learn to live as God's people. Jesus is at the same time the new Moses leading the people through the water and Yahweh himself bringing his children through the waters. So here's what all this pulled together means for me and you. As Christians who follow Jesus, Baptism is a public pronouncement that we are choosing to enter Jesus' family, that he is creating and participate in the story of the Bible as active agents and partners with Jesus, as his images in the world. It's going down under the water. We die. We renounce all of the old way of life. We die the same death that Jesus did. And coming back up out of the water, we are resurrected with Jesus. Our allegiance is with Jesus now. We're made clean. We're forgiven of our sins and our evils, brought into the promised new creation that Jesus has for all of his people who choose to follow him and be baptized. This is the vision of baptism in the Bible. And this reveals something important to you and I as Christians, something that we get uncomfortable with, especially in the modern West. Christian living means dying with Christ and rising again. But we often like to forget about the dying part. It's part of the meaning of baptism. Baptism is the starting point of your relationship with Jesus. Meaning a prerequisite for life with Jesus is you got to die. You have to go under the waters. You have to pass through the chaos waters. And see, we think of water as like tranquil and the beach, relaxation. When the Israelites saw water, they were like, we're going to die. Do you see that? We're going to die. Like, Thousands of years ago, they were like, there's no way. Listen, they thought the, flat, the earth was flat. They thought there's all these waters around. It's an abyss. No one knows where the bottom of it is. We're supported by pillars. Anything could go wrong at any point. The waters are scary. That's such a different image to us. So when I say the waters mean death, I don't mean like, oh, the boat crashed. Like, you should get a new one. Like, that was like, this was real to them. They lived through these stories of the flood, of going through the river, this was a very real potent image to Jesus, to his followers, and to the Israelites. This model of starting with death is not very popular. We live in a culture that wants you to self-actualize, realize all that's in yourself. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, you have to die first to come to the new life that I have for you and me. 
See, where the self-realization, the new age thing, the self-help thing gets it right, is that there is a you that, that is created, that you are called to be. There is a real person that God has created you to be. The problem is that this, the new self-help movement thinks that you have to bring it out of you. It's in there. You can get to it. And Jesus says, actually, you have to die to get to that point. You have to put to death this version of you so that I can bring to new life this other version of you. Jesus talks about faith like a mustard seed, that a seed will grow and become bigger than anyone thought. But what has to happen for a seed to grow is it has to die. The only way a seed grows into anything is it gets buried. And literally, I'm not like, look it up. It dies first. And then roots begin to grow. So I don't want you to miss that. The idea of baptism is beautiful. It's multi-layered. It's a beautiful picture throughout the whole Bible, but it does mean death. Baptism is an integral part of the Christian life. And it's not just a one-off event. Just like if you've been married, marriage isn't a one-off event. Marriage is something that happened in your past, right? You were married, but you're still married, right? You get married and then every day decide to be still married to that person. In marriage, you choose to completely love, identify with, serve, and be loyal to one person. It's beautiful. It's symbolic and real. But then every day you have to get up and reality hits you that you still have to get up and choose to love, identify with, serve, and give your loyalty to that person. Your marriage was an event, but in that event, you chose to live a certain life. You put to death your old single way of life and chose to be committed to this one person till death do us part. Baptism is the same thing. In getting baptized, you decide to give your love, your identity, your service, and your loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom and his way. And then you must every day wake up and live in accordance with your baptism. You're entering into the covenant relationship with Jesus. Just like the Israelites had to figure out how to be God's people in this new promised land. And they messed up a lot. And I'm here to tell you partly, you're going to mess up a lot. But that's okay because baptism doesn't save you but it's a way of living out this reality that Jesus has brought to life in you. It doesn't mean that you figure it out on your own. See, Paul, this is what Paul means in Philippians when he says you have to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. It doesn't mean in baptism you save yourself or that you have to continue to, to earn God's love. You're baptized. You, you love Jesus. Jesus is in your heart. You've got Jesus' love. You've got his spirit working in you to bring that out in you. But you're still going to mess up. You still have to figure it out. You still have to every day get up and choose to live this way of life. You have chosen to follow Jesus and join his kingdom in his new creation. And now you have to figure out how that impacts every part of your life, just as if you had gotten married. The result of all this for basic Christian, Christian living is that we now have a new lifestyle where God's plans and God's purposes are given priority to be lived out and fulfilled in your everyday life. Baptism is living out the resurrection of Jesus and choosing to do so every day until he comes back and finishes what he started and resurrects all of us literally and recreates the world and renews all things. It's participating in this story and living it out as if actually what happened, if I, as if actually your old person died and that Jesus actually was who he said he was, that Jesus actually came back from the dead, that Jesus actually made a way for you to pass through the waters because of his love for you. This is why it's central to our faith. This is why everyone who wants to be a Christian should get baptized. It doesn't save you. Jesus does. I'm not saying it's a way that you earn your salvation, but it's a choice to take what has happened internally with Jesus. 
in your heart and make it real in every lived out aspect of your life, to embody your faith, to publicly show that you have died with Jesus and now Christ lives in you. So to my friends who have never been baptized before, but are considering following Jesus or being baptized, I encourage you to get baptized. Choose to take part in this beautiful story. Choose to live out the resurrection of Jesus in your life. That's what the New Testament is about. It's Paul and Peter and James and John going, how do we make sense of this? How do we live it out? And they were all baptized. And they said, we will live this out. For those of you who are Christians who have been baptized, I've got something a little harder to say to you. If you've been baptized and you've been made a new creation, are you living like it? Are you living as though Jesus really did come and set you free from that thing that you were enslaved to, from the sin in your life, from the dysfunction in your life? Are you truly living as though you've put off your old self and become a new creature? Baptism, again, is the way you entered the story, but are you continuing to live out the story, participate in the story that Jesus has been telling you since Genesis? I'm going to urge you today, as Paul urged his churches in, Col in Colossians 2,000 years ago. Read, read this with me. Colossians 3, 1 through 15. Listen to this. Paul's talking to this community who's trying to figure out how do I live out the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, God's kingdom here on earth, and one day fully coming to earth. How do we live this out? Paul's writing them. He says, if you then have been raised with Christ, that's baptism language, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, baptism language. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, baptism language. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked, once, when you were living with them, he says. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Again, baptism language with its practices. And have put on the new self, baptism language, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Genesis 1, the images of God on the world. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. That whole passage is baptism language. He doesn't say baptism, but notice those parts. New life in Jesus, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. N.T. Wright again says this about this passage. Baptism is a sign that we live out. It's a story told in ritual of the central gospel message it depicts in the way in which that believers die with the Messiah and are raised in him, just like Paul said in that passage. 
As Paul says earlier in Colossians, when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised to him through faith in the power of the God who raised him from the dead. Those who were dead both in their sins and in their Gentile status, excluded from the covenant people, have now been made alive with the Messiah, joining the family, their transgressions being forgiven. Therefore, they should set their minds on things above, not on earthly things. This does not mean, of course, that they are to be so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly use, but rather that in their constant choice of actions, and this is important, Rather, in their constant choice of actions every day, in the habits of life that they produce, they are to make their co-resurrection and co-enthronement with the Messiah the intentional lens through which they see their whole life. All of this can be summarized as putting off the old humanity and putting on the new one, which is being renewed in the image of the Creator bringing you into possession of new knowledge, sharing Jesus' resurrection in the present. In other words, your baptism must affect everything you do. It's not an event that happened one time. It was you choosing to join a new way of life, individually, corporately, in all of you, your family, your individual life. You decided to join a community and live out the presence of God in you. In you. We talked about this this morning. How, when Paul talks about you being the temple of God, we just write that off like, oh, I shouldn't get tattoos or some other thing that's a misinterpretation. What Paul's talking about there is that you are where God has chosen to take up residence in this life. That should affect everything that you do. It calls us to a new way of life, a new creation. Paul says that you are now a new creation in Christ Jesus who raised you from the dead. We pass through the chaotic waters into new life with Jesus in baptism. It means living as though that's actually what happened. Do you really believe that Jesus really did bring God's kingdom of heaven to earth? That he really did come as God in human flesh to renew and save his whole creation and all of his children. Are you really going to live as though Jesus' kingdom has come and that his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you going to live as though you were baptized and that you are raised to new life? That you are a new person in Jesus? I ask you to go home this week and process this question alone your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your community, whatever. Go home and process this question. Where in your life are you not living out your baptism? What have you not put to death on the cross and submitted to the life of Jesus so that he can give you new life in that area, in all of you? Then kill it. Crucify it. Go through the waters of baptism into new life. He's faithful. He's going to help you along. You don't have to earn it. You just have to respond. He died in our place. He brought us through the waters. All you have to do is take his hand and let him lead you through. But it means dying to the old way of life. It means saying no to the evil sin and the ways of living before so that you can come alive to all that Jesus has for you. He is destroying evil. 
He is defeating sin and death. He did on the cross. He's continuing to do it now. And one day he will fully destroy all of it so that you can find the new life that you were made for in him. Revelation 22, the end of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible starts in this beautiful creation that God has made, this garden. And the story ends with a new garden, a new city of Jerusalem, a new mountain of God coming down out of heaven to be married to Jesus. As in, one day God will bring the garden back and you will be all that God made you to be in his garden. But you have to die first. You have to go through the waters of baptism. You have to choose to take his hand and let him lead you through. It's scary, I know. Can you imagine the Israelites going into that thing? With Egypt right behind them on chariots, which was like the tank back then? It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a little scary. It might not even be safe all the time. We're very blessed to live in a country right now where we have freedom, but there are plenty of our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world who do not have that freedom. And to be baptized is to say, I believe in Jesus and my allegiance is with him and not to you. And people died for it. It's not always gonna be safe. We are blessed beyond compare in America. And I'm so grateful for that. But know what you're signing up for. Jesus said to assess the cost of following him. And it does mean dying to your old way of life. So, what have you not put to death on the cross and submitted to Jesus? Where can Jesus still bring his resurrection life to you? Kill that thing. Crucify it. Go through the waters. Let him lead you. Take up your cross and follow him to death, certainly, but just as certainly to new life in his creation that he is making. He's offering it to you. He's done it all for you. You just have to follow him. But it does mean dying so that he can raise you to new life. Be baptized. Live out your baptism and pass into the new creation life that Jesus has for you. This is all, we're talking about this today because like we've talked about already, we're doing a baptism day on Sunday, June 5th. If you've never been baptized, I urge you to sign up to be baptized. Choose to take part in the life that Jesus has for you and to do it publicly and live it out. Proclaim your allegiance to Jesus, to King Jesus, who's initiating a new kingdom and a new way of life and who will never let you down. If you've already been baptized, go home and choose to live out your baptism. You don't have to do it alone. I'm not saying to go home and beat yourself up and like think you're terrible and that Jesus doesn't love you because you haven't been living out your baptism. Don't hear that from me. Don't misunderstand me. You are a new creation in Jesus. C.S. Lewis talks about that Christians who are baptized, who are in Jesus, who keep going back to the old way of life are like kids playing, making mud pies when, when their mom made a beautiful apple pie and put it on the windowsill for them. And it's like three feet away. God made you a beautiful pie. Stop playing in the mud. So much better. I promise it tastes better. <laughs> Go home and figure out with the church, this is not an alone thing. This is an us thing. I'm going home to figure out where I am not living out my baptism because I don't live out my baptism in every way. There are so many ways in which I don't which God is bringing to mind right now. What is he bringing to mind for you right now? Where do you need to live out your baptism today? Let's support each other. Let's be baptized together as the community of faith to love each other and support each other as we live out the resurrection life.
that Jesus gives us. Like Paul says, put on love, which binds everyone together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, the church. Be baptized. Come to new life in Jesus. Live it out together here in Fenwick as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for our baptism. We thank you for what you did that day when you went through the waters of chaos and came out the other side, making a way for us when there was no way. Lord, for those of us in the room who've not been baptized, I pray that you speak to them clearly right now, that they should be baptized, that they should participate in this story. For those of us who have been baptized, Lord, let your Holy Spirit illuminate to us the ways in which we're not living out our baptism. And let us pass through the waters once again into your new life. Help us to put to death the old way of living and put on the new self that Jesus has for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for being here with us today. I pray that you guys have a great week. Go live out your baptism. Have a great week, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore Podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only He can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.